I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on Truth of the Matter, we're joined by Nico Safos, who is the James Schlesinger Chair in Energy and Geopolitics with the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. We also have with us Ben Cahill, a senior fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. Guys, we're talking Ukraine because it's disrupted the global oil markets. Nikos, I want to ask you first, before we look into the future, let's start with a baseline. We're just a few days into this conflict. We're talking on Tuesday, March 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern. What are the commodity markets telling us? Well, Andrew, thank you for having us. You're getting a very different story in gas markets and oil markets. I'm going to let Ben talk about oil markets. The gas markets have been in Europe in a major crisis for the last seven months. The prices that we are seeing in Europe have been, for lack of a better word, insane. And so this crisis comes at a time when the market had already been incredibly, incredibly sensitive, incredibly jittery. To give you a sense, people always understand dollars per barrel of oil equivalent, so turning gas into oil. Right now, gas is at about $200 a barrel, right? It's been 160 for much of February, right? So what happens is you're kind of coming off the winter, and it started to seem like the European gas market was going to resume normalcy, things are going to be okay, and then this conflict comes, And it just piles a bunch of risk into how people think about what might transpire. So the response has been not totally outrageous in the sense that, you know, prices are back to where they were in December, right? But what it has done is it's taken you off any trajectory of uh, reduced prices, which were where you were in sort of January and February. So this is where we are right now. Ben, what's your take on the oil situation? Well... We've had a very tight oil market in recent months. We've had a pretty dramatic run-up in oil prices over the last six months. We've had a rapid rebound in oil demand around the world from COVID-19. The world is pretty much cranked back to where it was before the pandemic, unbelievably enough. Um, Some people are flying less, so there's a little bit less jet fuel demand. But in general, it's been a pretty rapid, robust recovery. And I think it took the market by surprise. What people in the market have been highlighting recently is that we've got very limited uh, inventories around the world. If you look at oil inventories, oil in stocks, it's below the five-year average. That is a little bit worrisome. Whenever you have that small buffer, it makes people in the market a bit nervous. We also have low spare capacity. So OPEC Plus made a massive production cut in April of 2020, the largest production cut ever. But month by month, ever since then, it's been adding more barrels into the market. As it's done that, the wedge of spare capacity that's available has gotten smaller and smaller. And so some people think we're moving into the danger zone, where if there's a major disruption from Russia or from other countries, there won't be that many more barrels that can come onto the market. We won't have that kind of buffer. The U.S. and the IEA today agreed to release 60 million barrels from oil stockpiles. How's that going to factor in? Yeah, there's been some speculation for the last week or so that this would happen. Look, I think it reflects the fact that if you are a U.S. president, you can't control oil prices. There is very little that you can do to make a short-term intervention into the market that will be big. But releasing barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is something that you can do. 
What's significant about this is, as you mentioned, this isn't the U.S. doing it alone. It's a coordinated response from the IEA countries around the world. The IEA was created in the 1970s after the oil shocks. It was really meant to provide you know, a forum for consuming countries and importers to get together and think about market management, but also to do emergency management in the case of war or big disruptions. And that's what's happening now. Interestingly, the immediate reaction is that oil prices didn't go down. They went up. And I think that shows that this was kind of priced into the market. I've seen a lot of speculation that this is not going to matter. It's a drop in the ocean. It's not a significant move. It's not going to have a big impact on prices. I think it's way too early to prejudge that. I actually think it's quite significant because it shows that consuming countries are getting together and saying, look, this is a big event in the market. We need a coordinated response. And it's quite a, it's a big response. So I think it's significant. I think it's way too early to see how it plays out. I've heard it said that it's not a coincidence that Russia planned this attack as oil was reaching $100 a barrel. What do you guys make of that? I think it's generally true that when you have a country that has a huge share of its government revenues and export revenues from hydrocarbons, when they're flush, they feel a little bit more liberated to do big things. And so did it enable Vladimir Putin to do this at this time? Yes, I think so. I don't think you would have seen it in 2016 a period when prices were lower, revenues were much lower, you know, the industry was kind of in crisis. So yeah, I think that there's something there's something to that. It's not a coincidence. What are you guys watching as this conflict unfolds? Nikos, I want to go to you first. What we're watching is how the conflict interacts with the energy sector. Right now, we've had some financial sanctions on a select number of banks that has had an impact. Ben can talk about that. We've had, you know, the United Kingdom say that they're closing access to Russian ships. And so some liquefied natural gas vessel was turned away from reaching the United Kingdom. But we haven't really done anything to tamper with and disrupt the flow of energy coming out of Russia directly, and certainly not the flow of natural gas on which Europe in particular depends greatly. So what we're watching is, could the sanctions escalate? Do you get to the point where the West says, you know what, we're done. We don't want your oil. We don't want your gas. That's a very difficult place to get to. Europe imports 40% of its natural gas from Russia. There is no way in the short term that you can replace these volumes. You could get the Chinese to forego their liquefied natural gas purchases for a whole year, and it would barely get you halfway what you need to replace the amount of gas that Russia sends to Europe. So it's a very, very difficult thing to say, I will not buy Russian gas. And so if you asked me last week, I would have said, no matter what happens, the gas is going to flow. Today, I have no idea if that's still true. I have no idea because we're just in uncharted territory. And I think the shock that this war has delivered in the European psyche is producing a cascade of effects that is very hard to figure out how this all ends. That's what we're watching. We're watching as the things that we thought were never going to happen are happening, and they're happening very quickly. And so there's a much wider range of possibility here than anyone would have thought possible 10 days ago. Ben? Yeah, as Nikos mentioned, sanctions aren't directly targeting Russian crude and, and petroleum product exports yet. 
because there was a concern about the price impact there. But in a way, these are de facto sanctions. When you sanction the Russian central bank and other financial institutions and companies, that has a ripple effect. What we see in the market right now is that banks don't want to issue letters of credit for people to buy Russian crude or products. Tankers don't want to lift those volumes. Insurance companies are very worried about doing business with these companies. And traders don't want to buy it. There's a differential. You know, the pricing of Russian crude and, and products has already declined relative to other sources around the world. So even though the sanctions aren't going after Russian crude directly, in a way, they're kind of having the same impact. And of course, as Nico said, I don't think anything is really off the table. You know, the Biden administration and the Europeans didn't want to target crude and, and products directly yet. Could they do that in the future? It's possible. Right? I, I think you need some sort of escalation options. And so what we're seeing unfold right now in the market is how much can non-direct or indirect sanctions affect a country's oil trade, even one of the biggest producers in the world. And as Nico said, this is uncharted territory. This market is moving at warp speed. I mean, every day we have new revelations. And it's kind of a humbling moment as an analyst because we really just don't know where the market is headed right now. Let me ask you this. We, we don't know where it's headed, but do you have a sense of the long term? You know, will the United States ramp up production, for instance? How is this going to affect climate efforts in, in Europe? What, what do you guys think about those questions? Yeah, maybe I'll start and then I'm sure Nikos can add to this. There are a couple dimensions, right? One is what is the U.S. supply response? The U.S. shale sector has been a period of capital restraint for a long time. For about a decade, the industry turned in very, very poor results financially, even though you know, production kept growing year after year. Last year, the industry had stellar financial results. It was very disciplined about spending. When prices went up, the industry basically paid down the debt, returned more to shareholders, and didn't spend on growth. Now the market is very clearly sending a signal that more oil is needed. And so the companies, they haven't quite adjusted their messaging yet. Personally, I think at $100 oil, they're going to have to do it. We're going to see a pretty sharp rebound in production from the U.S. There are also big questions about the future of Russia and OPEC+. Plus. You know, OPEC joined forces with Russia and other major producers because it felt like, you know, the, the uncertainties around shale, the big uncertainties about long-term oil demand and, and climate change and the ESG pressures, they needed a bigger pool of producers to deal with these questions and grapple with them. And it's very important for OPEC that Russia stays in this framework. I think they see a lot of strategic value of keeping Russia in the fold. But what is the future of OPEC plus and Russia? They're going to come under pressure to isolate Russia. How will that play out? And if we see sanctions really affecting Russian exports to Europe, how much more can they send to Asia? How will the Chinese respond? Will they be willing to buy more crude or products? in China and elsewhere in Asia, you know, you could see definitely a reorientation happening in the future. These are big, big questions about the future of Russia as an energy exporter. Nikos? I'm going to go one step further than Ben and say, I think this is the beginning of the end of Russia as an energy superpower, right? We are seeing, in a way, an energy divorce between Europe and Russia. You know, this relationship, if you go back to the Soviet Union, it started in the 60s. The first contract to import Soviet gas was signed in June of 68. It was August of 68 that Soviet tanks went into Czechoslovakia. This relationship has been through a lot, and yet something broke over the last week. The tolerance that Europeans have for depending on Russia has just changed overnight. 
we are hearing things coming out of the mouths of European leaders that we have never heard of before. And so what this means in practical terms is that there's very little you can do for the summer or next winter, although the planning that we are seeing coming out of Europe is unprecedented for dealing with eventualities that you never thought possible. But what you're very clearly seeing out of Europe is a desire to double down on the energy transition. Rightly or wrongly, there's a view in Europe that says, if we do not consume hydrocarbons, Russia's ability to do this will diminish. That is a widely, widely held view in Europe. And the European energy transition has always had foreign policy and geopolitical overtures. But you've never heard European leaders talk about it in the way they've talked about it over the last week. The German finance minister talking about renewable energy is freedom energy. We need to double down our energy transition. Hearing European commissioners talk about imports of Russian gas are funding the Kremlin's war chest. This is not language that we have heard out of Europe for a very, very long time. So as an energy analyst, what we're looking at, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, in the 10 years or so after the first oil shock of 1973, the role of oil shrank dramatically in the major economies as countries turned to nuclear, to coal, to natural gas, because they just perceived this commodity to be a fundamentally unsafe and unstable commodity. I think you're seeing something similar happen in Europe today, where there's going to be a supercharging of the energy transition in response to this crisis. And whatever the energy landscape looks like in Europe over the next 30 years, the appetite to integrate Russia into that market right now is zero. So you talk about an isolated Russia, you talk about a Russia that will have to look elsewhere, a Russia that will sell less, and no one has any idea what the geopolitical implications are of such an isolated Russia. Can Russia survive on selling oil to China and India and places that, that you know, desperately need it? If you look at Russian oil exports today, uh, last year about 2.5 million barrels a day of crude went to Europe, something like 1.6 million barrels a day of refined products, and I believe about a million and a half crude to Asia. So it's a significant exporter to both markets. It's the critical supplier to Europe. So can they replace Europe as a customer for crude and products? No, they can't. These sanctions that inhibit Russian companies from being able to go out into the marketplace and deal with all these intermediaries like traders and shippers, it's going to be a huge challenge for them. I think what's going to happen is that we're kind of seeing the Iran story play out on a different scale. When you impose sanctions that really make it difficult for countries to export their most important economic resource, there is a risk, right? If you create incentives for them to find ways around the system, find ways around the U.S. financial system, find ways around dollar-denominated transactions, you know, if the SWIFT messaging system that kind of underpins international banking is cut off for Russian banks, eventually creative people will find solutions, right? And I do think that there is a risk that we tend to overestimate how much we can achieve politically through energy sanctions and the long-term risks 
as well, I think are underestimated. Uh, we saw over time with the Iran sanctions, you know, more and more counterparties bought Iranian crude. You have a lot of volumes flowing into China, for example, that are not labeled Iranian crude. They're labeled Malaysian or Angolan or something else because you have ship-to-ship -ship transfers, you have blending that happens in different places. You know, if there's a financial incentive for people to find ways around this, they will. And so to me, one of the risks is, you know, if this war is not quick and easy, and it certainly doesn't look like it will be, you know, we're going to find out how much leverage we really have through the sanction system. It is a powerful lever, and the scale of these sanctions is just enormous. I, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. But I think we have to be a little bit uh, realistic about what can be achieved. And the longer this war continues, the more I think we'll see some cracks in the system. Cracks in what system? Well, I think we'll find that, you know, if the goal is to economically and politically pressure Putin so much through these energy sanctions that he has to change his war aims in Ukraine or reverse course or climb down, then in fact, it's not likely that will happen. Um, it's more likely that they'll double down until they get a better situation where they have more leverage. And the longer this goes on, the more traders and other people will step up uh, and find ways around the sanctions, to be frank. Nikos? Let me offer the gas perspective. Most of Russia's gas resource is in West Siberia. And it is wired to supply gas into the European system. So there are two handicaps for Russia to shift towards Asia. One is geology. It just doesn't have as much gas in the east as it does in the west. And the second is infrastructure. Let me give you some numbers. Russia sold to Europe about 165, 175 billion cubic meters last year. It's hoping one day, if it fulfills all the contracts it has with China, to maybe sell 50 billion cubic meters to China. Right now it's 10. So 175, 10 is today. 175, 50, it might be by the end of this decade. But that 50, because Russia had to cut a deal after Crimea, the price is terrible. So even though volumetrically, it's like a third, in value terms, it's much smaller, right? That's the reality on the pipeline side. Russia also has liquefied natural gas on the Far East and also in the North and the Arctic. It has ambitions to grow that. That's more flexible. Some of it can go to Asia, some of it can go to Europe. So there is a scenario if Russia fulfills its liquefied natural gas ambitions where you can imagine a Russian export base to Asia that maybe gets to about half of what Europe is today, but at a lower price and at a higher cost. Having said that, let's also think that selling energy to Asia doesn't give the same sort of geopolitical punch that selling energy to Europe does, right? I think it is an alternative, but it's the second best alternative for Russia. Gentlemen, thank you very much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about some of these critical energy issues facing Russia, the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 